Welcome to another edition of Gospel Conversations. We're continuing in our series of uh, radical humanism and evangelism. How do you take the gospel, this precious 2,000-year-old message, and adapt it for a postmodern world? That's the question we're confronting. And this isn't just a matter of packaging or repackaging the gospel in terms of style and communication. It's actually fundamentally mining the gospel to go back into aspects of its content and particularly the paradigms that we've, we've brought to the gospel and asking, are they obsolete? Uh, can we find richer ways of positioning? Um, can we discover richer ways of understanding and positioning the gospel for the world we live in? And this is actually a very fruitful exercise, which I claim that over the generations, great Christian thought leaders have done. It's a matter of being open-minded. It's a matter of inquiring. It's a matter of letting ourselves be challenged about beliefs that uh, we might have been presumptuous about and taken for granted. And that's what we're going to do in this particular talk. In this talk, we're going to look at one of the most controversial and, to be honest, foggy doctrines in the Christian canon, the evangelical one, that is, and that is the doctrine of original sin. It's, it's foggy because not many people have thought very deeply about it. I think we trade off uh, worldviews, uh, deep conceptual models without thinking them through. We don't really measure them against Scripture. We don't really look at their implications, but we somehow or other just assume that this doctrine of so-called original sin, whatever that might mean to different people, is, is part of the, 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 the canon of beliefs we've got. Now, um, it's actually a, a doctrine that's increasingly controversial, uh, increasingly controversial because it seems to locate the heart of the Christian diagnosis of the human condition in a very negative framework. And that framework is, is so negative and pervasive that uh, a, uh, a journalist recently wrote a book on the topic, and the book's called Born Bad, um, How the Doctrine of Original Sin Has Influenced the Western Mind. So we look at this doctrine in this talk, we go right back to its probable origins, its most famous uh, early advocate, which was St. Augustine, uh, look a little bit at, at his handling of it, and then trace it to its most complete and uncompromising expression in Calvin and his institutes. Of course, for Calvin, St. Augustine was, was a hero. And then I wrap uh, a mental model around it, the model of toxic infection. My claim is that there's a metaphor deep underneath these propositional doctrines, and that metaphor is the metaphor of sin as infection. And toxic infection, that is like a virus. It's, it's, it's hereditary. Uh, actually, the metaphor is explicit in Calvin, so it's, it, I'm, not, I'm not making it up. And then I essentially challenge that metaphor and I claim that it's not terribly scriptural for a variety of reasons and I introduce an alternative metaphor 
a metaphor of the lost office, which we then expound and locate in a very, very tight and deep reading of the uh, strange passage that many people think lies at the heart of Paul's anthropology and his, his doctrine of salvation, that is Romans chapter 5. We dig into that, and as we do, we unlock a far, far richer diagnosis of the human condition than original sin, far more radical, and this relocates the gospel um, and the problems we face well away from the idea of an individual pathology and takes us more into the epic realms of a battle between life and death. So it's a, it's a big topic tonight. Um, it's actually a very long talk, and I apologise for that, uh, but it's such an important topic, and it's such a glorious topic. We can do so much better by mining the Bible, mining the Scriptures, mining the tremendous um, philosophy and cosmology we have in the Gospel to find uh, richer and better ways of talking about the problems we face in the human condition, how those problems, uh, how light is shone on those problems by the, the gospel tradition and how the gospel tradition positions um, salvation, redemption against this broader diagnosis of, uh, of the problems we face in, uh, in the world as human beings who care for it but can't do much about that. Well, tonight's talks, uh, I think it's a very important one because it's a, it's a, a deep topic um, that influences people and um, influences us more deeply than we think it might, sin and original sin. And I think a lot of us have shadowy um, assumptions and worldviews around it that, that we... Uh, that drive uh, what we think is a doctrine um, and I intend to look at them tonight you know really really aggressively now tonight to be honest with you uh, is is a journey that that I've been on for a long time and particularly with Mark Strom so he and I, I rang Mark I said Mark I'm going to blow original sin out of the water and I'm going to I'm going to acknowledge you as a partner and mentor <laughs> so <laughs> either you're going to get some abusive Emails or, or very, very kind of uh, thankful ones. <laughs> and he said, well, Godspeed, I'm not coming. Um, <laughs> uh, in a way, it's, it's been a wonderful journey. So it's, it's a compendium of uh, some deeply thought through issues. Uh, some, of, some of the ideas are original that we've, I suppose, created through, a, through our dialogue together, Mark and I, over, over many years. Some not so. Um, some is just plain good old theology. Um, but it's really important to have a theory of sin. Uh, I, as you know, emphasise grace and creation, and so people might come back to me and say, what's your theory of sin? I actually, ha I think far more about sin and evil than most people do. It's on account that I think about it so much that, that I, when I say I think about it, I also say, and I mean this to people, I haven't found the idea of sin in my life useful for so long I can't remember it. I don't find it a useful diagnostic to structure my life. Um, if I committed adultery, I have no problem saying that's sinful and I deserve some kind of real, you know, retribution and punishment. It's the wrong thing to do, just like wrong. No, no, no two ways about it. 
So that's fine, but at the moment I happen not to be committing adultery, you'll all be glad to know, and my wife's glad to know too. So, you know, but, but to go beyond that as a, as a primary diagnosis of human behaviour becomes extremely problematic, I've found it. So, um, now, uh, so I say those things not flippantly, but because I've thought long and hard about them. As a matter of fact, because I've thought so much about them, I'm free to say these things. So tonight, I'm, I'm wrapping it up together. And the talk we're do, the, the, the rough theme we're doing is, is radical humanism and evangelism. As you know, we uh, began this saying that the creation gospel is great, it's fantastic, but what are some of its implications for evangelism in the postmodern world? What does it say? Um, and, and, and clearly, a lot of people are thinking about this and should be thinking about it, it's our job to make the gospel as winsome as we can for our generation. It's not our job to kind of trot out what somebody said 100 years ago or 500 years ago. They didn't do that. You know, the so-called heroes of the faith from past generations were thought leaders who thought through, they were in a debate with people in their time, and, and they, uh, they, they mined the gospel for truths that were pretty relevant to their debate. But any epistemology will tell you that we human beings are limited. Nobody's going to get the full picture and say, that's it. It's frozen and it's finished. We can't say Luther did. We can't say Calvin did. We can't say anyone did. In their time, they were servants. So we have a job in our time, which we can't delegate to anybody else, to say, how can we make the gospel as winsome as we can? It's not our job to declare it like some brute antagonistic demagogues and say, take it or leave it. That's, that is really disobedient. Paul did not do that. You just got to read his epistles. He was a great rhetorician. And he said, you know, I, I become a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greeks that I can win some. He thought a great deal about his messages. You can just see it in the epistles. You can see the way he, he really thinks about how to change tack for the audiences. You see it in the sermons and the Acts of the Apostles. And I regularly point to Acts chapter 17. It's incredibly important. First major evangelistic message we have to the Gentiles. And it's phenomenally interesting as to how it just doesn't read like Paul at all. But um, I, th I think I'm not going to talk about that one tonight, but actually that, be, that is a pretty good sort of uh, model for what we have to do in a postmodern world. Okay, so that having been said, uh, let's now, uh, we've been looking at aspects of the gospel that are edgy or problematic. Last time we looked at predestination and what a mess Calvin made of that. And tonight we're going to look at original sin. Okay, so let's, get, let's, let's, let's move on to it. So the first thing I want to say is that this original sin is, uh, in my view, it's a worldview, not just a doctrine. I, I, actually, I actually think belief systems are not propositional. They're, they're deeper than that. They're deep psychological undercurrents. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a poet at heart. And what poets knew is that um, the most, one of the most magnificent definitions of poetry was T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets, who called poetry a raid on the inarticulate. A raid on the inarticulate. You know, we have these deep stirrings within ourselves and words come out and we all know they're just the tip of the iceberg. We all know what that feels like. And But real change happens not with the words, 
at the, on the tip of the iceberg, but deeper down in the thought systems and the beliefs. And, and um, that's where I think the paradigm shifts occur. I think that's where the gospel needs to hit. When Paul said in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, he was talking about these deep thought structures, which we kind of got to get at. They're hard to get at. So that's where I'm going tonight. I'm actually not really trying to just deal on the, on the deck with the deck chairs, you know, of proposition. I'm trying to look at the thought systems. Um, now, original sin does fit within a, a, a nested set of topics. It's obviously a subset of sin. Okay, original sin is a particular doctrine. Um, it is not a doctrine of all sin. It's mainly a doctrine of how the sin of Adam got conveyed to the rest of the human race. That's so it's a kind of a, um, it's a distribution mechanism, right? Original sin is the distribution mechanism. Sin still, well, there's a bigger question of what on earth is sin. So, and then beyond that, I, I will, the, 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 the bigger question is creation. Where does this fit in with creation? Um, and what I definitely, one of the points I make again and again and again is that one of the great shortfalls of evangelical doctrine is it starts in Genesis 3 not in Genesis 1. You know, sin dominates the evangelical mind. It did not dominate the Old Testament. As we said, I, I simply cannot, off the top of my head, think of any reference in the entire Old Testament to Genesis 3, outside of Genesis 3. I can think of hundreds to Genesis 1 and 2, but not to Genesis 3. That in itself should be rather thought-provoking. Um, but... If we look at sin, I, this is how, uh, a spider diagram, um, in other words, a cluster of associations. I think associated connotations, um, I think that the big thing is that uh, it implies an anthropology. This is really, really important. We actually are coming up with an, a, a, a statement of an anthropology of human beings. Um, I think it ties into psychology and it's very close to guilt and anxiety. It's very close to guilt and anxiety. It's a lot easier to, to, to frighten a human being than to inspire them, and the sin doctrine does a pretty good job of that. Um, and the practice I have seen, you know, is the emphasis is, can be kind of quite dominating. I, I think it's often fed by a very bad reading of Romans 6, 7 and 8, you know. We'll come, I'll come to that. I mean, the... the, the the notion of what the word means, uh, the shadowy connotations of it uh, were fairly famously um, recanted by the NIV in their alternative edition. I don't know if you know, but the NIV was re-edited in 2011 and they got rid of their biggest mistake. I rang Mark last night because he dumped on the old NIV as making a terrible translation of Sark's flesh and he was dead right. But I said, Mark, do you know they've repented? They've joined you. <laughs> so... We'll, we'll talk about that, but it's very... Romans 6, 7 and 8 is quite a dominant passage in, in the minds of, you know, many kind of semi-literate Christians. I mean, you know, it's kind of like you go from not having read anything to having read Romans and nothing else, and then you go and read other stuff. So semi-literate Christians talk about Romans. Um, really literate Christians begin with Ephesians. I made that point last week. Um, and uh, that's definitely, uh, you yeah. know, as Rick Watts said to me, that is the high point of the gospel, Ephesians. That's where you start. Very, very importantly, the doctrine of sin will set your goals and expectations for behaviour. They, they implicitly set goals. They implicitly set benchmarks. 
Um, which leads to the last point that whatever your doctrine of sin is will direct your attention. What do you look for? What do you diagnose? What do you expect to find in yourself and in other people? Um, And it will affect uh, how you interpret scripture and behaviours. And it will determine the trajectory of your effort as to what on earth you think the word sanctification means. So, so there's quite a lot packed up inside of it, if that makes sense. And I, I mean, I'm, 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 because I'm, I'm, I really want to help myself and other people want to kind of tug at the roots. Um, while we're at it, I think, let's quote a bit of Hamlet. I, I, I actually think Hamlet's view of human nature is as good as it gets. Uh, we are arrant knaves all crawling between heaven and earth, um, which is a really nice statement of the, of the paradoxes of the human condition. Um, the book of Hamlet has got as much to say and do about sin as, um, and the doctrine of sin as, as most literature does. Um, but uh, uh, Hamlet thought we were, we were caught in a paradox between heaven and earth. Now, uh, original sin, um, generally speaking, the doctrine of original sin is sleeted home to St. Augustine. Uh, uh, there's a book came out which Lorraine Holly, who came last week, drew my attention to, which is pretty interesting, and I, I would recommend it as a read. I've just begun to read you know, a part of it. It's called Born Bad. Born Bad, How the Doctrine of Original Sin Has Shaped the Western Mind. Very, very interesting. So it's written by a non-Christian journalist. It's quite sympathetic. But, it, you know, we have to understand the Western civilization was born out of Rome, St. Augustine. By the way, the Eastern church did not buy the doctrine of original sin. That's why it's the Western mind. Um, um, so right back then in about the 3rd and 4th century, there were big divisions over this issue. St. Augustine advanced it in his confessions. I don't know how many of you have read St. Augustine's confessions. I just have this wonderful love hate relationship with St. Augustine. He's such a transparent individual, um, so brilliant and so erratic in a way. Um, uh, It's not kind of stated baldly there, but it's everywhere implied. Um, And um, whilst, when I say I I have a love-hate relationship with St. Augustine, there's so much in him of the love of God and so much in him that's so inspiring and so much in him that goes down a wrong path. (laughs) But he's so intelligent. Um, I won't go into it now, but it's important to remember this, that the Confessions is virtually the origins of Western psychology. I mean, if, if you don't understand that, you won't. It's not about doctrine. He wrote a book called On Christian Doctrine about that. It's actually the journey, the psychological journeys of faith. So it's, it's a self-examination of his own, a torturous introspection of his own journey to faith. And by the way, that is what I have seen and I've personally experienced the doctrine of original sin will do to you. It will turn you into an introspective nightmare and it did to him in a way. So um, in the confessions, I mean, this is what he said. Um, you'll, You'll just get the torturousness and the genius of it in this. I was bound by the chain of my own will. This is chapter 8, the kind of conversion chapter. The enemy held fast my will and had made of it a chain and had bound me tight with it for um, out, so I think it should be out of. Out of the perverse will came lust and the service of lust ended in habit and habit not resisted became necessity. 
the chain of sexual desire by which I was so tightly held and the slavery of worldly business. Now, this is revealing he was hung up about sex. It is extremely sexually driven, St. Augustine, right? Um, most people who talk about sin in Christian circles, it's kind of like the next, the next breath is sex, which is interesting. And this just shows me this is a kind of pathology. Like Christians who are hung up on sex. Nobody's hung up on um, deceit and gossiping and uh, cowardice and organisational betrayal. People don't talk about that. That's all okay. Christians do that a lot. And I can tell you of very public Christians behaving in organisational politics that I personally find terribly sinful. Far worse than some sexual sins. But, but, but we, we, yeah, that, that, that should be right up there, but it's not right up there. You know, it's, it's all sex. And, and he was really hung up about it. Now, I, fine, um, you know, I mean, he was actually, well, without going into his biography, I think he was, he was very, very faithful through the kind of up and down relationships in his life. But this is kind of uh, a bit of a pathology. And it clearly drove him. The other thing, which you do also get, is he loved his business, which was being a rhetorician. So there's a bit of the sacred, lot of the sacred secular split. Now his conversion was to was essentially to the asceticism of the Desert Fathers. Um, that's that's what will happen in the rest of this chapter. People who gave everything up and you know threw it all away. Um, so you know there's a lot in there to kind of align with in his journey to faith. But there's a lot to say with, well, I wouldn't want it to be a paradigm. Um, and then he says, how can there be such a strange anomaly? The will commands itself to will, yet it commands it is not done. But actually the will does not will entirely, therefore it does not command entirely, and this is actually an infirmity of the mind. Essentially, I can't control myself. I can't control my will, so therefore um, I must be thoroughly sinful. Um, Calvin took it, when Calvin got hold of it, because Augustine was his hero, he really turned up the heat. And uh, he said the heavenly image was obliterated in Adam. There you go. Statement of what I would consider to be heresy, um, if not error. He also entangled and immersed his offspring in the same miseries. This is the inherited corruption which the church fathers termed original sin. Therefore, good men, Augustine above the rest, laboured to show us that we are corrupted, not by derived wickedness, but that we bear inborn defect from our mother's womb. Therefore, all of us who have descended from impure seed are born infected with the contagion of sin. In fact, before we saw the light of this life, we were soiled and spotted in God's sight. Adam, by sinning, not only took upon himself misfortune and ruin, but also plunged our nature into like destruction. He infected all his posterity with that corruption. Thus, when Adam was despoiled, contagion crept into human nature Hence, rotten branches came forth from a rotten root. That's a good little sentence to give to a mother just giving birth to a child, right? <laughs> rotten. <laughs> Which transmitted that rottenness to the other twigs. Congratulations, you transmitted rottenness to your child. And he really gets to, goes to town on this. I mean, he gets worse and worse and worse. We're crammed with profanity and no good thing, etc. So... I think it speaks for itself. Like this is this, it is it is a uh, an infection. So, 
the model, the kind of the, the psychological model behind sin for a lot of people is toxic infection. It's a, it's a toxology model of infection. I mean, it's there in his language, but I think it's in the minds of a lot of people. It was in my mind as a young Christian that that there's this um, that sin is not only toxic, but because what sin what what toxicity does, like a vi- it's infectious. It's an infectious disease. Um, now, what they therefore the doctrine said was that. Adam began the process and he sinned. Um, fine, that's Genesis 3. The critical question is, how did, the, how did that get passed on to other human beings? So it's passed on. How did it get passed on to other human beings? And um, that was St. Augustine's answer. It was semen. It was, just, it was a biological inheritance that we got original sin, the infections. That's the doctrine of original sin. Um, and uh, what this uh, led to, leads to, I, th- I think, there are what I would call allied doctrines. You know, the stronger this doctrine is, then the allied doctrines come about like, I think, confession is a ritual and practice, um, you know, asking for the forgiveness of sins, which I personally don't do or advise anyone to do. I think it's unbiblical. Um, a, the kind of cycle of altar calls, you know, continual coming back and forth, um, asceticism. I can remember as a, I loved cricket, I loved sport, and I was such a keen Christian because I was converted a long, long time ago for the age of five, and I can remember the battle over watching test cricket. I used to love watching it, but I thought it's got to be wrong for me to sit here and watch test cricket. I could be praying and reading the Bible. So on the holidays when the test cricket used to be shown all day, I'd be hovering in and out of the lounge room trying to avoid the temptation of watching. It it couldn't be holy. Um, And, you know, I laugh now, but it was was like an agony for me, you know. Um, uh, This is called asceticism, self-denial, like it, you know. and, we, and, and, and the mental model is sanctification becomes detoxification. How do I kind of scrub out the infection? How do I get rid of the infection? I mean, that's what it implies. Um, it implies an anthropology of mis- misanthropy. It's, it, like, I, I don't quite know, you know, Peter, I know you've got the SRE debate. I, I, I just am grateful that most of the opponents haven't found those passages in St. Augustine because if they were printed in the Sydney Morning Herald, it would not do our case a lot of good um, that this is a great thing to be teaching six-year-olds, right? Um, So, but very importantly, um, you know, this really bothers me a lot. I think it kind of boxes us Christians into a narrow edge game where we define all behaviours by sin. Uh, including improvement. It's kind of, you know, and I just sit and listen to sermons and Bible studies, all this kind of diagnosis of sin and getting rid of it. It's, it's, it's a pretty narrow framework on human behaviour. I, 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 I've just, you know, as I say, it just frankly hasn't been useful to me this week to think about sin. I mean, if it had been, I would tell you, but it hasn't been. About you, Mike, do you think much about that in the kind of sales operations of Celex? I suppose you see a bit of it, but it's... it's a Um, I think what it very much leads to is a huge mistrust of motives and agency. You know, I certainly thought it was, you know, I couldn't have agency, can't trust my will, um, no good thing lives in me. So so that's what I see as uh, some of the implications of it. Now, in St. Augustine's day, so is that kind of clear enough, I think? 
um, in St. Augustine's day, not everybody agreed with him. There was a furious debate. Essentially, um, his opponents, who were people like um, uh, um, Pelagius in particular, who's, who's got a bad name as a, as a heretic, we, I think that's very unfair on him, and Julian, and the Celts, they emphasised creation much more. Essentially, it was like optimism versus pessimism. And, and they really withstood him. So, uh, over sex. Like, as far as uh, Augustine was concerned, sex between a man and a wife was not a good thing. If you can't control yourself, have some sex, then go back, ask forgiveness. And, like, it was pretty... It was, it was, it was anti-sex. And um, it's actually interesting to read the debates. Julian kind of was a brilliant orator and a opponent of his and, and when Augustine was old said you can't even you're too old to know, know much about sex Augustine you've lost the plot you know uh, um, it's a good thing it's God's gift so so there was a debate the other side loosely wanted to emphasize the made in the image of God rather than the corrupted one audio now where it particularly particularly came to um, ahead was over free will. Because if you think about it, if I believe in the doctrine of original sin passed down, if the original sin is total and total depravity, as the Augustine passage said, I, I actually don't even have a will that can believe. Because if I do, that's a good thing in me. Do you get how that's impossible? Whereas these people said, no, 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 no. Um, everyone... Everyone's got their own opportunity. So this little cycle, the, 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 the cycle of God's reaction to sin, this is very, these are very important words, by the way. They'll come up more when we get onto Romans in a moment. Judgment, condemnation and death. That is the tight cycle from Romans. God saw it and he judged it. The judgment was condemnation. The effect was death. That's, a, that's the cycle. It's a very important to bear that cycle in mind. Pull these things apart. They're not the same. They're not synonyms. But that cycle waits until I sin. So everyone who's born has got a chance. That's what Pelagius said and the Celts said. They've got to have a chance, you know, and we're made in the image of God and it's up to every single person to have the chance to believe or not. Otherwise, it's pretty unfair. Now, this is pretty important because I, I think I was, as a young evangelical, confused between being an original sin person and a play. Because I used to say the gospel was, in my mind, God will judge you for your sins. You know, if, you know, uh, personal responsibility when I was sort of witnessing to my friends. Go, well, actually, I didn't know it, but that's exactly what Pelagius said. It's up to you. You know, God's kind of every life he's going to put on the microscope and he's going to say, how do you go? So that's, that's actually a Pelagian doctrine. Um, Calvin didn't believe that. Calvin, Calvin believed that it was like we were totally infected and we had no opportunity to even save ourselves. So I actually don't, I think both of them were, were fighting over something from the wrong paradigm, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but nonetheless they were opposing each other. So this table is how I would describe the debate, and this debate kind of did set the lines down for the centuries. Um, original sin versus the free to choose movement. The first issue is the gap, the gap between God and man. And for Augustine and Calvin, it had to be a large gap, and the gap was measured by, the unit was morality. The unit of the gap was morality. So my the more depraved I am, the holier God is. It's almost a corollary. That's, my depravity is necessary to, to distance me from God. The other side, the Celts, you know, the Celts were 
very much into you know wonderful hymns like "Be Thou My Vision," etc. That's Celtic. They they just were very creational, and they thought, "Blow this for a joke." We're quite close to God, um, and uh, they would emphasise the attributes we shared with God and, and so on. Um, theory of creation, very much the Calvin Augustine inquiring, much, much less so for St. Augustine, I think. He, his mind was far, far richer than Calvin's. I mean, I, I just think Augustine was a whole lot brighter than Calvin. Um, but nonetheless, the emphasis was on Genesis 3 and the fall um, versus the goodness of creation, whereas the Pelagian, the Celts, were the other way around. They, they emphasised the goodness of creation. That's, that's how they started the story. That's what they talked about. And the minor part was sin rather than the major part. So that was their emphasis. The anthropology implied, clearly, um, the anthropology in the Calvin uh, and Augustine camp was depravity is emphasised. You know, man's depravity is emphasised over the image of God. Whenever Calvin talks about it, he's very, very reluctant. I know we were made in God's image, but, you know, and as we saw just then, he actually said that God's image was obliterated. I think that kind of slipped out. <laughs> That's what he really believed, though. Whereas, the, whereas the, the, the Pelagian, other side of the controversy, the Jew, uh, and Julian, they emphasised the image of God over the depravity. Um, finally, choice. Choice is very important. This real, the rubber starts to hit the road here. Um, depravity had to mean we are not free to choose. Because if I'm free to choose, if you think about it, it's a merit. It's a merit. The passage we read from St. Augustine is, my will is chained, you know. The logical extension is there's no good thing in me. Now then, the logical extension of that is that the, it, this is where the rubber, the babies die and go to hell. That, that's kind of where the, 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 there's a lot of debate over it, but that was the extension. That does the unborn, that, if, I, if I believe, as the Pelagians do, that the baby hasn't sinned yet, then it won't, the baby won't go to hell. But if the, if the infection is complete, the baby goes to hell. So, so this, is, this is the debate that they had. And there's a nasty collusion that goes on here, which is that for Augustine Calvin, I think they were sort of painted into a corner where they feared that if we open the free-to-choose door, if we allow that to come in um, to salvation, then that will open salvation to merit. I mean, the logical extension will be, I'm saved because I had the goodness to make the decision and you didn't. Um, and therefore, a nasty alliance developed between Grace on the one hand and extreme hardline predestination and depravity on the other. It's, it's a really nasty collusion that, the, that they felt to, to, to emphasise grace, I had to emphasise total depravity. Did you sort of see how that works? It's very interesting to me to see how, in a way, they were boxing themselves into conceptual cul-de-sacs. But I could see, well, if I believe this, it'll take me to the next step. So, so that's how their debate worked, worked out. Um, so, so far, let me just pause there and, yeah. Um, you think, like, Augustine, I, I feel, while I say there are elements of this, they really got accentuated in, in Calvin and he took them up, whereas Aquinas didn't read Augustine with that, and he saw, like, for him, creation is good, and he had a different kind yeah. of view. Yeah. And so his interpretation of Augustine is different. And also in Augustine, you find... Yes, you do find this sort of... Um, he's trying to work it, work it through. But he's also committed to, as he is in Confessions, right at the beginning, in the first paragraph, you know, you have made us for yourself, O God. 
and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We are made to desire in you. So that goes against the notion, the Calvinistic thing of total depravity. So Augustine has all the way through this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he's much more complex and, and, and he's much more attractive. Yes. And, and, and I agree with you. That's why I'm, I've tried to be careful to... Definitely, definitely the seeds were there. And in a way, I, I sort of feel, to be honest with you, I feel that, that Augustine just didn't have the right theology to take him where his instincts would like to take well, him. No one had done what he'd done before. Yeah, no one had done it. He, he was actually trying to chart new territory and Correct. he didn't have the benefit of a lot of what we've got. I mean, um, so, he's a, but he's, and you're right, he has just a, a really rich, wonderful picture of God. To be honest with you, um, as I said last time, reading Calvin's Institutes was an extreme disappointment. I haven't yet found much of it I like at all. Um, but I wouldn't say that about St. Augustine. Even this chapter 8, it's just such a winsome story. He's so honest about himself, you know, and it's, it's beautiful. There's many things to wonderful to say about him, so I agree with all of that. But, but he was definitely the seeds were there. Yes, Monica? The way I view Augustine's take on that he's not that good or he's a feels like he's not anywhere near God is that he is so close to God compared with the rest of society, like myself, for example, that it's almost, um, I, I think it's about grades of how they who's, who's, who's this? Who's, who's, who are you talking about? Augustine, for example, because he was so close to God, hmm. he felt that he was far from God, and he felt like he had to confess and make up for that. And also, um, I was just, it reminded me of a passage that St. Paul wrote about um, that it's good, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, mm. but because sexual immorality is occurring, then each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. So it's like, okay, well, most of society is going to need to have a wife, but if you can manage it, then it's, it will bring you closer to God because you're denying, denying yourself. I, I think, so a few things, um, I don't agree with what you said about St. Augustine and it'll become clear to you why I don't in a moment, um, uh, uh, although I can understand, you know, well I'll nuance it, you'll, you'll, you'll understand my answer by the time the talk finishes. Um, I, I, on the Corinthian one, on the, uh, look I don't have time to go into that Corinthian passage tonight. I, I, I think you can read that through the lens of ascetic self-denial or you can read it through, I think, a better contextual lens about, frankly, the pragmatics of ministry and what he was involved in. But I don't think it means, I don't think it, look, if you really want the Bible's view, holistically read the whole Bible, right? Song of Songs is a hot sexual book, right? It, it's actually hotter than we know. Uh, uh, Ian Proven told me that, right? <laughs> and um, it's like R-rated, okay? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, X-rated. Now, the great debate that happened both in the Jews and in the Christian church was, uh, well, A, how on earth did it get in the, in the canon for a start, right? And, and secondly, well, perhaps we should take it out. Well, no one could take it out, right? It's there. So they were stuck with it. So therefore, in I think Ian told me the 5th century, uh, the church decided, and so did the Jews, that it was all an allegory of our relationship um, with God, the church's relationship with God or, or humanity's relationship with God. That was the way to get out of the fact it was hot sex. 
Ian is very, very critical of that because he says you've got to let the Bible talk to you. You've got to let it say what it's saying. And if I say it's there in the canon, it's saying sex is actually created by God and good. That's what it tells me. Don't allegorize it. You take the teeth out of it. And so, so that's probably the paradigmatic book. And, and uh, anyway, I don't want to major on this sex issue, except St. Augustine clearly did, okay? <laughs> Apart from that. Let, let, sorry. Yeah? <laughs> Could I just make a comment about evangelism? Sure. And what I regard as the miracle of evangelism, because you alluded to Paul's second journey, Acts 17, and sure. speaking in the Arabicus. I sort of look at that lecture and say, Paul got to Athens very disappointed in how things had gone. He'd been kicked out of three towns, hardly anyone had got converted. And so he tries a new approach. And he speaks to Gentiles only, so he leaves out the, yeah. the old Jewish connections and the compulsion to try and prove sure. Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. But I'm intrigued by the fact that if you look back a few steps to the conversion of Lydia, it says that the Holy Spirit inspired her. And I think that's important because I think that affects the choice argument that you're using. Because until the Holy Spirit inspired her, she wasn't capable of the right choice, is what I would say. Yeah, I, 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 I think choice will always be a dance between God's inspiration and our response to it. I, I agree with that, and, and I like what you've said there. But I think there's a bigger framing of these issues that can get us out. I'm, not, I'm putting all of this forward as the problem. This is not the solution. I just think there was a limited framework in all of this debate, which is what I'm going to get onto now. But certainly what it does is that I think we've, uh, a sin-based gospel puts us uh, into a corner. Um, and um, I, I won't uh, major on this tonight. Um, I might possibly do it next time. But the theory of argumentation is very, very powerful. Uh, rhetoric, which is the ancient art of persuasion, has got a lot to teach us. It's the heart, it's the heart of my practice in my consulting practice. And um, we've created a model called the ABCD model, which is a model of a strong argument. And when we're talking about the gospel, we have to make an argument. You know, we, we have to make our choice. And uh, in, in this model, um, essentially, persuasion of anyone begins by finding common ground around a problem. You know, there's a very powerful statement that human beings divide over solutions, but they unite over problems. That, 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 and we are in a solution trading world. Every, the, whole, the whole corporate world, the whole theological world, the whole media world is my solution versus your solution. We do not have structured dialogue that lets us go back into saying, well, just, can we just put the solutions aside for the moment? Do we have a problem or not? What do you think? And that's what we do in Second Road. And as a result, we have created some of the most powerful co-designed solutions in Australia. I'll just come from a talk this afternoon uh, from a wonderful young Indigenous leader on, with a video showing how the strategic conversation that we created with Indigenous Australia has created the whole empowered communities policy position and had a breakthrough that hasn't been had in, in a century in Australia using our methods. Just brings tears to my eyes. But why did it work? Because they were, we brought together 50 
people who, 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 you know, many of whom had never met each other, didn't agree with each other. How in two days do those people get united? Well, it's because we start with a problem, not with a solution. Otherwise, they'd still be arguing. So what happens is that, is that if we make sin the opening gambit of the argument, I think you're boxed in from the world, in a postmodern world, from the word go, because they don't believe that they're sinners. Or if, they, if you want to push it, they'll say, yeah, but I know my behaviour versus that person who says they're a Christian, and frankly, I think I'm better. And I have to agree with them. You know, the only thing that keeps Christians, you know, kind of in the... Uh, well, what helps a lot of Christians think Christians bad, non-Christians, uh, Christians good, non-Christians bad, is that they haven't worked with a lot of non-Christians. Um, and, uh, well, it, it is, but I have seen... Exactly the same situation. I know that person's a Christian. I know that person's not. It's the non-Christian who stood by me, made the courageous decision, was selfless, and the Christian was self-interested. I've seen that happen before my eyes. Now, if I went into that and my belief system was Christians were to be a Christians will automatically behave better than non-Christians, then I might throw my faith out because I've actually got an existential crisis here. It's not working. It's it's a really serious issue for, for people. Um, and it's a fragile belief system. So, um, to make uh, so so if, if we in this doc in this model here, the A is if if the, if individual sin is my starting point, I've got to prove you're a sinner. And the question is, how do you get saved from your sins? Which is how I used to say we had to position the gospel. The B is the goal. The goal will be you'll be forgiven. So so that's a you know, and but that leads to the question of well, so to what 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 then? To what end am I forgiven? It's kind of not a very high, kind of gets me back to basics, but then what? Um, and if, if that's the kind of A to B, which is the sort of problem to, to, to goal, then you end up with the, 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 the minimalised gospel where the cross in C becomes the mechanism that we all talk about. And that's what most Christians talk about as a mechanism for salvation. So almost no Christian has a soteriology of the resurrection. And without a soteriology of the resurrection, you're not in the game. Because that's what the New Testament talks about. So, that, so it's kind of a shrinking. I mean, all these things on that page are true, but they're shrinking. Does that make sense? So if I take the wrong opening gambit in an argument, I'm boxed in from the word go. I can't recover. It's sort of like a chess game. If you aren't smart enough to locate the problem in a broad enough way to take people by surprise and intrigue them, you've lost the argument. They put you in a box and that's the end of the day. And that's what a lot of what we're doing in my view. So I won't go further than that, but if I were to go further... Well, I will. Here we go. Um, you know, the real, what are the real consequences of the kind of scripture education program, uh, which begins with, frankly, as from what my mother says, how I was converted, which is the wordless book, which begins with the black page that we're all sinful. So, if we, you know, the opponents to scripture in school call this abuse. But that if we preach to eight-year-olds that they're sinners, uh, that that's a form of abuse. And, well, yes, I do too, because I didn't, I used to, but having seen what for many people is behind it, like that Calvin thing behind it, I would agree. And I know of Christians who have taken their traumatised children out of SRE because they have nightmares on account of this sin thing. So it's it's an interesting, an interesting situation, and and um, 
the uh, I, I'm a big believer. So, so, so I think I, I think the sin-based gospel is not going to put us in a great position to be the starting point for the evangel- for, for the argument we're going to frame for our day and age. Point one. Point two. I'm a really big believer, as you are, Gabriel, in the faith at work movement. But I think this original the sin emphasis cripples it. And here's how it works: that um, if if we have a sin-based gospel and we want to go into the public arena, right? We want to go into the public arena with the, the, the sin-based gospel. It turns us into audit police who essentially pick ethics and what's right and what's wrong. That's a kind of brand positioning. Um, it's, it works like this, that if I've got a, a, a Christianity that's based around this, you know, essentially undercurrent of morality and sin and I open up the distribution mechanism as the faith at work movement has done and I think it's a wonderful thing to the public space the danger is I I take into the public space the old message and I've seen videos of you know a young lawyer or somebody who's kind of wondering how to be a Christian at work um, and it's what do I do with swearing in the workplace and what do I do with um, you know binge drinking in the workplace you know, as if my, that's my job, is to correct everybody's bad behaviour. And if you go up further, even, even where Christians think a Christian message can get a Guernsey in the, in the public space, it might be an ethics committee or something. This is at the edges of the world. Nobody is very interested in this stuff, right? It's what Bonhoeffer feared. You play here and you're playing at the edges, as the audit police. No one loves auditors, by the way. Let me tell you that. No, no one likes auditors who go and check everything, right? It's not a great brand positioning. Um, so I just brainstormed. These are some of the problems I've come across this way, my, you know, helping organisations. These are some of the big problems that different clients have shared with me in the last month. And just work out whether sin is useful. We're a single product line company and we need to grow our revenues and incomes. We're stuck. Two, we want innovation, but we're, stru- we're structured for the status quo, so we can't innovate. Number three, how do we collaborate across silos? We work in silos and we're fragmented. Number four, our customer service is terrible. The call centres just use scripts and it shows to people as insincere. Oh, that could be sinful. Perhaps I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but anyway. <laughs> Management. Management needs to be turned upside down. It's too command and control. Hierarchy dominates here and it's old-fashioned. This is really, really a worry for us because nothing's more hierarchical than the church um, pretty well. So, but, but anyway, that's what people worry about. That was Argyle Mines. Tremendous leader, Kevin McLeish. He believed in the upside-down organisation. Com- all of this could be the church. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, the complexity of information is overwhelming us. We're drowning in information. Um, and this is leading people to have terrible lives, like senior managers who working 17 hours a day. Uh, big one, will machines and computers destroy more jobs than they create? So those are the big issues that are really agonising for people. So my question is, if, if I go to them with morality, I'm just at the edges of their concerns. And this was the problem I had as a young Christian that my God doesn't have anything to say about innovation and creativity. There's nothing in the method that helps. So what is happening is a vacuum of influence. It's being filled by Eastern religions and mysticism. 
If you want to go further, I've certainly seen Japanese books on the whole TQM movement that diagnose the problem of Western management as the doctrine of original sin that, auth that validates managers not trusting the motives of workers. And I think it's correct. If the basic anthropology is you can't trust people, they've got to be controlled. Command control is the way to do it. Give them freedom and guess what? Sin will break out. There's no question that 19th century, a lot of 19th century industrialism was fed by this kind of fundamentalism. Company law, uh, colonialism. So we, we British can't. India. British India. So we can't hide from the fact that this kind of sin based gospel has not produced good in the world universally. I mean, it's got truth in it. But do you see what I mean? So. Um, uh, can I just put in there? Can I raise the issue about the, the um, empirical science? Yeah. Which um, I don't know if this one that Edwin made or, or another context somewhere else, but um, the point about the experimental based science. Is the profound distrust of our own ability to reason and to observe accurately that led to the development of experimentation against the Greek um, confidence in both observation and, uh, and rationality that gives us empiricism. It requires the doctrine of sin, profound on the sin, to actually have that massive breakthrough of empiricism which trumps the Greeks completely. And it's led to, led to the modern phenomenon. Now, that's, Peter Harrison has documented that very clearly. You know, Peter's up in Brisbane. Yeah, I know Peter, I know Peter. But that, I, I mean, that's, I know this is their field, but that raises a very. Yeah, it is, but it's not the only. I mean, Edwin didn't say that. Edwin said, uh, what Edwin said about the, doc, the birth of the doctrine of science, his claim was that it was the, it was the different cosmology of creation yeah, that's true. that challenged it. He, he, he didn't bring in the same thing. I mean, look, I'm not saying these things are black or white. Um, I am not saying that, you know, the reality, I haven't yet got onto the, the alternative model, it's coming. But I am acknowledging that this kind of paradigm of the sin, original sin, is really problematic for interaction with the world at large. That's, that's what I'm saying, and it's, it needs to be really rethought. Now, not, you know, we've got to find ways of telling that story. I'm going to get onto my ways of telling that story because... Um, it's, it's, uh, but certainly this is something that as a young person, I mean, I didn't throw my faith away when I was 18 or 19, but I had a problem that evangelicalism had totally run out of juice because it was so boring. I mean, it was so easy to get your mind across. It was so simplistic um, because by the age of 12, I could have I given you a summary of Romans. You know, I was an unusually educated young evangelical Christian. And, and by the time I was 16, I was much more interested in reading existential poetry and philosophy than I was what I thought was a rule book. You know, so it had I'd kind of got to the edges of it, you know what I mean? Um, I'm not there now, but, but it, it is really important that this gospel... We're not doing the gospel justice. It's, it's nuanced and full and rich is what I'm going to you know, get around to. But the, the, all these issues I've got up there, I'm not making any of them up. If I top of my head, big issues, worrying people, that's them. And I'm saying the framework of the kind of ethics and morality doesn't help. The other big issue is the two natures. Uh, this kind of feeds the doctrine of the two natures, the two warring parts of me, uh, fleshly nature and versus spirit. Uh, this is, uh, it distorts the readings of Romans and Galatians. I won't go through this now, but this is the recantation at the beginning of the 2011 edition of the, uh, the NIV that repented of the, of the translation of the word sarx, 
flesh as sinful nature. If you read, if you've got an NIV, that's the, that's the original NIV, all throughout Romans, it will translate this as sinful nature. They reject that now. They just translate it as flesh because the phrase sinful nature feeds the idea I have two compartments in me, inside of me, a psychology. That's wrong. Rather than, and I love the way they put it, um, the, uh, two, two varieties of influences or powers to which we yield. And without going into it, you would know that if you want to really find where the doctrine of the two natures came from, it's Plato and the charioteer in the Phaedrus. I won't read all this through, but that's where the doctrine of the two natures come from. It's Platonic. It's not Christian. And, you know, where the charioteer, there's a dark horse and a white horse and we're fighting, you know. A lot of people, to be honest, if I read that out, would think, oh, that's Paul, Romans 7, you know. No, it's not. It's Plato and the Phaedrus borrowed from Egypt, so I don't know where the Holy Spirit is in that line of thought, but it makes me suspicious of it. So if we said, you know, what's a better way? I'm now going to move from, from my diagnosis of, I think, what the issues are to a much better way of thinking, which is uh, a, a, a paradigm or a metaphor that's, um, I think, much more biblical, which is the metaphor of the lost office. So I'll begin by telling a story. And it's a true story, um, which was a very, very powerful businessman um, in one of the biggest corporations in the world, a mining company who ran a half of that company. Today's terms, uh, you know, a $10 million or probably $5 million a year man, an emperor whose word was law in that vast domain, capital expenditure, performance management, hiring people, sacking people, closing offices, want to fly to London tomorrow afternoon, first class, off I go, secretary arranges it, a king. There was a problem, big problem, over, overrun of capital budget. This CEO flew to Melbourne for the monthly meeting of his peers, six of them, and the CEO that they had every, you know, afternoon on Wednesday afternoon, whatever. He walked into that meeting at four o'clock and he walked out at five o'clock unemployed. First time the company had put the axe on someone for the failure to perform. That meant that by the time he got back to his hometown, he couldn't open the, his office. Uh, he couldn't even get into the office. He couldn't have an email account. Overnight, all the authority and power he had was gone in an instant, in a flash. That's real. For those of you who worked in corporate land, you know what that's like. It's actually the most bizarre thing in the world, but it's like a death. And yet you're the, this person was still had, this, had the same psychology. He had the same plans. He had the same ideas. They were just useless. He had lost office. Now, that model and metaphor is what Adam did. It's a much better way to look at it. Adam lost office with God. In a moment like that, he lost the Amex card for the human race. Now, that's a covenantal or systemic reading, not a psychological reading of what happened at the fall. And so... What this means is that 
a, a richer view of we human beings is that we live in a system. I've, everything I've talked about so far is kind of individualistic in sin. This is a system. We live in systems. And they're, they're, they're kind of God-ordained uh, authority zones. And a system is essentially a set of relationships that lead toward a goal. And, and the cosmos is like this. I've given an example of an organization, but that's how God's done the cosmos. And in that system, um, if the core relationship is withdrawn in that system, it's the end of it. And that what we see happening in Genesis is that the core relationship that was withdrawn withdrew life. It's like God sucked the oxygen out of the world. In a moment, in an instant, I withdrew the relationship. If God withdraws the relationship, life goes. That that's a much better way to read Genesis 3. Does that kind of align with people? It's just a different metaphor from toxic infection to lost office. Now, what that does is then you say, you introduce the rest of us, the broken relationship was irrevocable like a smashed vase. There was no way back. It was sudden and irrevocable. If I smash a vase, it's smashed. It's final. It's not a degree. It's not a process. It's the end of everything. The relationship's gone. And the, the other point is that in a covenantal model, solidarity kicks in. We need to extend the metaphor. But we know in human systems that one person can declare war and then we're all at war. That's the way it works. If a prime minister or an ambassador declares on the behalf of our country that we're at war, we're all at war, whether we like it or not. That's solidarity. And Adam did that for, the, for, the, for, for all of us. He lost office for all of us on behalf of the family. So that's, those are the concepts that underpin um, the covenantal reading or the lost office reading. With me so far on that as an alternative model? Now, the most important passage in the Bible, if we want to get inside sin, is Romans 5 particularly 12 to 21. Now, I don't know how... This is a torturous passage, and I know it's kind of getting on, and, but I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but in, in the minds of many people, this is as, as important a passage as Paul wrote. So we're going to spend a bit... Of, I'll just spend a bit of time on it. Um, it's torturous grammar and reasoning and appears awkward, but is illuminating. Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the Lord was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Now, it's incredibly important that we all have that in the palm of our hands and can paraphrase it. It's incredibly important. So I don't know how many people here have made a deep study of this passage, but um, it's, I'll give you, I'll give you the, 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 the grid lines of it tonight. There is a very, very good and powerful article on it by John Murray called The Imputation of Adam's Sin, which I recommend to you if you want to really study it. But here's how it goes. Paul begins verse 12 with a statement which actually is following on from Romans 4. Sorry, from the first half of Romans 5, which is to explicate the fullness and profundity of the salvation in, in, uh, through Christ and his resurrection. And he has this very important sentence. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, dash. The only way to understand this is the grammatical structure. We have the introduction to an argument that is suspended by a digression in parenthesis. What, how Paul reasons with his agile mind is he foresees a problem in the audience's mind with what he said, and he will immediately divert to knock that problem down so he can continue with his argument. Does that make sense? Now, let's go the structure first. Um, because all sinned, by the way, John Murray believes it should be translated in that all sinned. So you might make a note of that. It would be better read in that all sinned. Dash, the, the argument revives in verse 18. So you go straight from 12 to 18 to understand the, the initial flow. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Read that as a sentence. Read 12 and 18 as a sentence. Now the big question is, let's go through it. This is interesting. As sin entered the world, now into this original sin thing, through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. This is a very important phrase. I'm going to use it again later on. Death came to all people. He's moved from sin to death very quickly. Death's what he's rather talking about. That's his evidence, not sin. He's talking about the phenomenon of death ruling the, the creation through this one event, in that all sinned. Now, this is the question. What does that phrase mean? The interpretation of that phrase is the critical exegetical puzzle. Does it mean the sin was transmitted? Or does it mean at the instant of Adam's sin, we all sinned too and the relationship was broken in covenantal terms then and there? And that's the answer. Yes, that's what it means. All sinned is aorist tense for a start, which means it is not a past perfect. Past perfect tenses means something keeps going. An aorist tense is an event that was happened and then it finished. So all sinned, when? When did everybody, 
in that all sinned. When did that happen? When Adam sinned. And then, consequently, from one trespass. So now, now you're wrong to say we're, you know, we're subject to death or we're going to be judged by God because of your sins. No, no, nothing to do with you. With stupid Adam, he did it for us all. That's the only reason that death reigns. One sin, one trespass, nothing else. It's like the ambassador. So this is, you know, this should begin to feel unfair, like it had nothing to do with you, but the, sorry, that's it. That's the reason we die, because of one sin. Because there is only one choice, which is a relationship with God or not. And once we've rejected the relationship, then the relationship goes, then life goes. So death is not an arbitrary thing that God... It's not a thing, an ontology, like six other things I could have taken away. I take myself and I take life because I am life. You don't want me, you don't want life. Now, um, the argument in the middle, the diversion from that incredible statement um, that the entire corruption of the cosmos came through one event, and by the way, the wonderful um, uh, uh, theologian uh, Dodd, who's quite old-fashioned, because a lot of people say, well, wow, this must mean that Paul believed in a literal Adam. And if he didn't, if we, if we for whatever, whatever your reading might be, don't believe in a literal Adam, how does this stand up? He writes about this very well. He says... Um, Thus, Paul's doctrine of Christ as the second Adam is not so bound up with the story of the fall as a literal happening that it ceases to have meaning when we no longer accept the story as such. Indeed, we should not too readily assume that even Paul did so accept it. The subtler minds of his age, like Philo of Alexandria and the Egyptian Greek who wrote the Hermetic tract, tract Poimandrus, whatever that is, treated the story of Adam as a symbolic allegory, and Paul's too was a subtle mind. It is enough for him and for us to recognise that the wrongdoing of an individual is not an isolated phenomenon, but part of a corporate racial wrongness which infects society as we know it and affects the individual through its environment. Thus, this is the fact that Paul has in mind when he says sin came into the world by one man. So it's quite interesting commentary that, you know, it's not all even, even, even uh, writing on a literal reading. But why does he go from that 12 into 13? Well, the answer is he's talking to Jews for whom the idea that, 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 that sin was bound up with the law and that um, that's, it's the law that describes a sin when I break a law. But he makes the point, if you read it, this is very powerful, death came before the law. Like, the patriarchs died. Everybody died before Moses. So, so I'm, not talking, I'm talking about something bigger than the law. It's the reign of death, and it's going back to Genesis, not, not going back to the law. So that's his diversion. Um, and the, the, the infrastructure of this argument is astonishing because essentially, if only Augustine and particularly Calvin had read this carefully, they would not have, have got into the mess they got into. So God, there's no, no, no need for any original sin whatsoever. 
God just smashed the relationship. And if I withdraw the relationship, it's like me sucking oxygen out of the room. It's all over. And death reigns. That's it. Historical, finished. Now, let me... Obviously, I don't have time to keep going through this passage. I'd commend it to your reading and John Murray's uh, work of it. But I've, I've drawn a couple of diagrams to make the, the reading of, um, of it clear. And that is that here's the model that we began with. Adam sinned. How's it passed on? The answer is judgment, condemnation and death came the instant that Adam sinned. And that's the end of it. It doesn't matter how righteous anyone is from then on in. Death reigns. That's what he said in Romans. Death reigns. See, if you read Romans 5 carefully, he's not talking about sin at all. He's not into poor old Calvin's depravity. The problem is we're going to rot in the grave. That's existential and that's big time. If you want to talk about depravity and corruption, talk about the system of death we're under. Nobody argues about that today. And that's what Paul's argument is. Now, we can trace it back to a moral beginning of a sin, but the existential problem, death reigned for all. And death is not an event, it's a system. We're all in it, getting old, getting frail, limited abilities, that's the world. That's the problem Paul framing, not original sin, not depravity, not infection, not toxicity. He then says... As, you know, that Adam lost the CEO's job for the lot of us, essentially. He lost Psalm 8, the rule of the cosmos. Remember the Psalm 8? He lost it. He lost the tickets to the office. And so what we inherited was the system of death. I know that we've inherited, I know, you know, like I don't need much persuading that I've inherited a system of death. As far as I know, I'm going to die. Don't like the idea, by the way. Do not like it at all. But nonetheless, I've got it. It's inevitable. So therefore, the gospel is death's inevitable and it's inherited, not original sin. So I can talk to a postmodern person, I don't need to talk about sin, let's talk about death and how likely you are to escape it. Uh, that's what's inherited and God's judging you, that the Christian message is on the basis of Adam's sin. Um, so I won't go into that point. Now, this is really important because if you don't get this, you don't get grace. Because his entire argument in Romans 5, if this sounds unfair, if this sounds you are totally boxed into a corner uh, that you cannot change on account of what someone else did, then guess what? Unfairness is grace. It's the single best definition of grace. Extreme unfairness. So that's what he goes on to. Um, he essentially says, in the same way there was one act of sin, so there is one act, and I'll just uh, turn this air conditioner on because it's coming up, of uh, righteousness. Um, and that's Christ. So that's going to be his argument that this act of, uh, of righteousness that Christ did, the Father saw it, and he justified. That's the opposite of condemnation. He was pleased um, and he, he, he re-established the relationship and he got life. Actually, the, the, the important word is glory, glorified. So that's, that all happened just as instantly at the cross as what happened with Adam. This is Paul's argument in Romans 5. 
So therefore, Jesus has regained office. He has regained the CEO's keys on behalf of all of us. Um, and therefore, we inherit a system of life just as securely as we inherit a system of death. That's his argument again and again in Romans. It's an astonishing argument. It's, it's a paradigm shift. So the one act of obedience has changed us. And, and in this model, you know, life is conceived of as relationship with God and righteousness is right relationship with God. So it's an astonishing model of um, what God has uh, done in Christ. That's the argument of Romans 5. So you can see, if you cast your mind back to it, it's, a, it's, a, it's approach sin, a totally different model, totally different view, much more biblical, but no toxic infection in it anywhere whatsoever. All the, all the things Paul Augustine and Calvin grappled with are just obsolete to the argument. But it's not that we still have an argument that we've got a big problem. It's actually a more severe argument, to be honest with you. Um, and I certainly found that the deep reading of Romans 5 life-changing for me. It hit me like a ton of bricks years and years ago and just changed all of my paradigm for these things. I won't go into the two trees in the Garden of Eden because we're running out of time, but that's a really powerful model to back up what we're saying, that essentially we lost the, the knowledge of the tree of life and had the knowledge of good and evil. Um, but I want to skip over that now because I'm aware that uh, we're... We, we should finish in the next 10 minutes. We can go for another 10 minutes or so. I can wrap it up. And So we now need to get some good technical terms. The technical terms are really important. I would commend to you that the other ones I mentioned about justification being the opposite to condemnation and glorification being the opposite of death. So this leads to this question that we live in the reign of death. How, and, and that's really important. So I like the phrase Ichabod. Ichabod is the glory has departed. That's actually the best way to describe our problem. So we live in a system of corruption. Now, by corruption, I don't mean even moral corruption. I just mean entropy and decay. The problems that, we, that I face in my... All those problems, I, 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 they're actually... They're, they're, they're problems of decay. We're not big enough to solve the problems. My mind isn't big enough to handle it. I can't... You know, I'm not powerful enough to get collaboration. These are problems to do with Ichabod. The glory's departed. They're problems to do with the death system, that we're just not good enough. We're meant to reign and not reigning. Um, so um, what I believe is this. These are speculations, which, I mean, I'm, I'm not the originator of these, I don't think. I think people like Irenaeus played with these a lot, that the life in the Garden of Eden was not eternal. It had the promise of eternal life, but not the actuality. That's a speculation that's yeah, so what's the difference between Adam prior to sin and us, is the question. So perhaps he had the potential and a choice and it wasn't eternal. Um, uh, so the experience that we have today, because I'm alive, like I'm not dead, and yet Paul says I am dead. So what's going on here? Alive, dead, what's it mean? Well, if we wanted to be, um, we, we've kind of got an experience of life without life. That's the domain we live in. Um, which is, um, I live in a system where I know I'm going to die, but tons of me thinks this is wrong. I, I, I ought to be living forever. <laughs> uh, um, so, so this is very frustrating. Um, I think the best way to look at it biblically is we've lost glory. So I think glory is a very specific phrase, meaning eternal life inhabiting created life. 
you know, it, it is eternal life inhabiting the created life. That's what we've lost, is glory. So I've got life without life, but when Jesus was, Jesus said, I'm going to be glorified, meaning I'm going to have um, physical life with eternal life. And, and God's character and qualities will inhabit creation. So this goes way beyond the mere forgiveness of sins, and it becomes the redemption of space and time. I don't know if you've thought about this, but what about change? Because I think about it all the time. Like, how can you have change in eternity? Because surely change, I mean, this is what Plato grappled with, poor soul. Well, guess what? Glory will solve that problem. I don't know how, but it's going to be really interesting to see. So it isn't just like sin. It's the whole cycle of variety and change. How will that ever become eternalized? Yeah, guess what? He's done it. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a massive prospect that clearly Paul had in his mind whenever he wrote about these things. So let's go now to, as we finish, to how I frame the gospel. Because I think the gap's bigger, bigger than Calvin did. So I want to talk about the glory gap versus the mortality gap, the morality gap. So the, mor the morality gap that poor old Calvin and Augustine had to get into was there's a big gap between me and God and therefore I've got to be depraved. The more depraved I am, the bigger the gap. I used to have this problem about any of you as a young Christian, but I, I did think. And what I thought about is that's leaving me with a problem that Hitler equals Gandhi. Like they're both depraved. They're just as bad as each other. I don't think Gandhi was a Christian, so this is leaving me in a really difficult intellectual moral position because I actually think Gandhi was a better person on the earth than, than Hitler. How does this fit into my system? And then I get verses like, all righteousness are filthy rags. So that, that proves it, that Gandhi is as bad as... So I, I used to be left with those problems. If I go to the glory gap, this is what I think about, like where it was like 10 billion, whatever years ago, the, the thought of the cosmic power of God initiating creation, 10 billion years ago, the thought of multi-universes, and where do, I'm a speck of dust. There's a huge gap. This is a gap beyond comprehension between me and God, and it's accentuated by the death system. And that gap of glory is absolutely massive for me. And to think Jesus bridged that gap is enormous. That gap is far bigger than any depravity you want to give me. Like, he's reached across billions and billions of light of years. He's reached across billions and billions of kind of uh, light, you know, the, the volume of the cosmos, and he's put me at the center of things, and he's reached across death. I mean, this is, a, a, this, so the glory gap is a, is a huge gap for us to talk about. Does that make sense? So I, when I read... I, I no longer have to believe in the glory gap that, so I don't, I, you know, I, I don't have to believe that Hitler equals Gandhi. But what is all righteousness? Well, it simply means any act of righteousness you do is equally useless in resurrecting you. That's all. It doesn't matter what you do. They're all equally useless. Look, if you think you can be particularly pious in a night of prayer and then you rise from the dead, good luck. Or you can say it to a non-Christian, but if you think like all your honesty is, is good enough for you to kind of smash out the other side of the grave, all power to you. But I don't think you do. It's all useless. We are so, we are so ineffectual at reversing the system of death. So that's a powerful way of framing the gospel. So if I conclude, uh, go back to that 
table I begin, um, there is a very large gap. The glory gap is huge. Um, it's existential. No one can argue with it. Um, as for creation, I think the emphasis here is more on the frustrated purpose of creation. And our anthropology should be how the image of God is uh, foreshadows the incarnation in Christ. So that table, to me, the third column there, takes the, 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 the gap problems and the creation theory and the anthropology problems to a much, much better place, more logical for the postmodern world, but still actually even truer to the gospel and the Bible, I think, than the, than the other stuff. And I think we end up with a gospel, if I'm going to frame it like this, if I went back to that ABCD, here's how I'd frame the gospel. Um, I think the reign of death is where you start it, not the reign of sin. And uh, essentially you say the problem we all face is, you know, the reign of death threatens the meaning of life. I think that's the big conversation. It threatens to make life a joke. It threatens to promise more than it can deliver. And we've lost the earth. The earth is stuffed. I mean, global warming says to me, we have just screwed this place up. And we, it's too big for us to reverse it. I mean, I'd start the conversation there. I'd talk about lost rule, just the incapacity we've got to manage our own lives and so on. And uh, I would very much say God shares this with us. You know, that, that my point of view as a Christian is that this was not meant to be this way, that this place was meant to be meaningful and God's purposes have been frustrated. Something's very wrong and start the conversation then. These are things everyone sh can share, you know, and yet we've got strong points of view about them that people will not agree with. So that's a good place to be. And I think that the kind of gospel that emerges from that is a much bigger picture of where we want to get to in terms of glory and, uh, and, our, and, and locates the story of Jesus as um, his resurrection as the, as the source of all things. Uh, these are some of the statements that we might have to um, open up the gospel, and I, I mentioned them last week, so I won't go through them again, um, as to our position of to a postmodern world of framing the gospel. And I want to finish. This is indeed the last slide. I just started to look at some parts of the Bible. There are many of them, but Isaiah is a good one. Like those epic passages in Isaiah that frame the problems of the human race, they're just magnificent. We could borrow them. They're, none of them about, they're not really about sin. They're more about this whole system getting stuffed. So Isaiah 55 is the thirst and hunger one. Like everyone's thirsty. Everyone's hungry. So he says, you know, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Who isn't thirsty today? Who isn't hungry, like in spirit and heart? Um... Why, you know, the, the frustration of life, spending money and not getting it back. This is an appeal, just a human frustration and a sense of the limits and disappointments of life. That's what this speaks to. It's all part of the inheritance of the sin system. I love Isaiah, the glory knowledge gap. My ways are as not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts your thoughts. Is the, 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 we are in a, you know... Uh, a darkness of understanding and the gap between us and God is so massive, it's immeasurable. Um, and therefore, we're, we're wandering around bumping into things in the dark. Um, that's a message, I think, that's framing our problem statement um, as the, in the system of death. And finally, uh, justice on the earth. 
um, sorry, um, this is just so poignant. This is just so poignant because it says God is actually as sad, even sadder than we are at how we screwed the place up. Uh, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty can't enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. It's just so poignant that God was appalled that there was no one who could save the place. So this is like, I mean, I've, I've thought of so many kind of corrupt political systems and they, they break everybody's heart. People make movies about it, you know, um, and justice can't win over and honesty gets beaten out. God's appalled there's no one to intervene. So... All these are ways of framing the problem of sin, not as a problem of sin, but as the reign of death and a system that's got out of our control a long, long time ago that we've inherited. So therefore, um, I think the doctrine of original sin was a most unfortunate departure um, from a half-truth that could have well been relieved by a better reading of Romans. And if that had been the case, then I think... Well, whether, forget the mistakes of the past, my very strong belief today is that we need to frame the gospel around the reign of death, um, which Paul does in Romans 5, run the reign of sin. So that's it. Sorry, uh, it's a, it's a, it was a bit of a long one tonight, but it's a kind of topic that you've got to get into and get your thinking straight about.